A Hindu couple who grew up in a remote, very isolated region of India showed me one time a video recording of their wedding ceremony. The recording of that ceremony was, to my eyes, what a foreign language is to my ears, largely indecipherable. I simply did not have the cultural tools to discern what on earth they were doing. It was the strangest thing in the world, as you watched it play out on the screen. What I could discern as I watched it is that clearly there is in this context a ritual that's taking place, several rituals, marriage rituals. You could detect that. You didn't know what they meant or what they were doing, but you could detect that. And then there was, at the end, a wedding feast. Now, a great diversity of wedding rituals is witnessed as one moves from culture to culture, obviously. But in every culture, you will find two features that prevail. The first is a ceremony of rituals that formalize a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Whatever they are, however they look, however indecipherable to us, you can see that. There's an an attempt here to bring these two together in this marriage. And secondly, a wedding feast. A communal celebration, if not at least an acknowledgement, of the vows that this couple has taken. Marriage rituals followed by a communal meal combined to announce that something big has happened here, and we cannot forget it. Something this particular assembly of people must never, ever forget. And so we sit down to eat with one another, and we formalize this relationship through ritual. Now, as we come to the 24th chapter of Exodus, we find the nation of Israel participating in these very rituals, these two basic ideas. This is no wedding ceremony, to be sure, yet we find Israel formalizing a covenant through ritual, followed by select members of the community joining together to eat a fellowship meal. And what should give us goosebumps, I think, is that Israel formalizes this covenant relationship not with another nation, but with God. What is more, the elders of Israel follow the ritual ceremony by eating a meal in the very presence of the Lord. Israel's behavior in this chapter stresses that this occasion must never, ever be forgotten. On this grand day, Israel formally enjoys covenantal communion with God. And we might ask, well, so what? That was a long, long time ago, and what does that have to do with me today? Listen, Eden Baptist Church, hear me. We must not pull up our chairs and watch this narrative from a distance and say, wow, wouldn't it be grand to eat with God? Wish that was us. No, we should watch this account with the keen anticipation that because we are followers of Jesus Christ, we too are God's people. And as God's people, we realize that what God does in one era of salvation history, He typically unfolds in future eras as He works out His saving purposes. This is our God. We are His people as well. And there is a uniqueness to what He does with His people in salvation history that we need to watch very carefully here. As Christians, we are not Israel. 
But we are children of Abraham through faith and have been grafted into the saving purposes of God as we have come to know Him through Jesus Christ. Therefore, the narrative of Exodus 24 serves for us as a pattern for the relationship that we enjoy with God today through Jesus Christ. There's much more here, if I could say it this way, than meets the eye. Some of it will be confusing to us. We'll work our way through that a little bit. But there's much more here than meets the eye. This has everything to do with you and me. Little context as we bring ourselves back into the study of Exodus. Israel journeys from Egypt to Mount Sinai, having been delivered from Egypt. In Exodus 19, God's presence descends on the mountain. There is smoke, there is fire, there is earthquake. There is lightning flashes. There's this great trumpet blast signaling that God is great and greatly to be feared. And that's precisely what the people do in 1916. They tremble with fear in the presence of God. Moses climbs the mountain. Then he is sent back down to convey God's truth to the people. Limits are set around the base of the mountain. Remember this as we go into 24. There are limits set around the base of the mountain. The people cannot come up. In fact, even animals cannot touch the mountain or they will be killed. Then, chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, a section dealing with the Decalogue, the ten words of God, and the people's response in verses 18 through 21. We will do what God has said. Chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, 19 Perhaps all the way through verse 33, we have the divine laws. So we have these ten words and these divine laws delivered from God to the people with Moses serving as mediator between. We come then to chapter 24, and with all of these laws laid out for us in chapters 21, 22, and 23, we come now to the close of that section and what is really a hinge into the following chapters, 25 and following. As we come here at verse 1, 24, chapter 24, verse 1, we read of a call to worship. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Again, the stress on the people not even being able to touch the foot of the mountain. But there is a call here to Moses and to the elders of Israel to come up further. It is a restricted invitation to worship. Only Moses will ascend the mount to God, his brother, his older brother Aaron, his two older sons, Aaron's two older sons, Nadab and Abihu, along with these 70 elders. We don't know anything about them. Israel knows who they are. But they are going to come up partially onto the slope of the mountain with Moses, and then Moses will proceed from there. But considering the context of chapter 19, Moses ascends the mountain more than once to meet with God. And then in 1924, he descends to the people, and God speaks his word to them, his law to them, as they stand at the foot of the mountain. Now God summons Moses back up again. But before he ascends, we look at verses 3 through 8 and consider here what takes place at the foot of the mountain. So verses 1 and 2 kind of need to be put on hold. 
God says, Moses, come back up the mountain. Hold on to that thought here and let's consider what is going to take place now at the foot of the mountain. Verses 3 through 8. Verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. I'm not sure this appears that it possibly links back with chapter 19, but at any rate, there is the teaching of the word of God from the mouth of Moses. He reveals the Decalogue to Israel in 20. 1 through 17, and the law in 2018 through 2333. He tells the people the laws of God. And, verse 3, all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Draws our attention back, doesn't it, to 19.8. Remember, before even hearing the law of God in 19.8, the people said, We will do it. We will do what God says. We will obey His law. And now they've heard the Word of God, and they say it again. We will do what God calls us to do. Israel trusts in the goodness and trustworthiness of God and enters covenant with Him. We will obey. 19.8, We will obey. A second time they say it. Verse 4, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. What God had spoken, apparently in the hearing of all Israel, as Moses stood among them in chapters 19 through 23, Moses now puts down in writing. Mosaic authorship of this section of Scripture is a great trial to the critics of Scripture, but the Bible doesn't have any problem with that. Moses wrote these things down. He's the author. This is a formal, written record of God's requirements for His people. It is an external objective Word of God. This is not a religion of subjective experience and feelings. Those feelings and the subjective element of it come with the knowledge of God, but they always start with His Word. His Word stands as an external, objective witness to who He is and how we are to relate to Him. His Word stands solid. And we must come to that word and feed on it. And Israel says that they will. They are thrilled to do so. Now what Moses does next proves awfully strange ritual to us. Thus far we understand the word of God in agreement to obey God. We walk in that world every day of our lives. Knowing the external word of God and our need to obey Him. But notice what Moses does now. It gets a little bit weird for us. Middle of verse 4, he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who burnt, offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Let's stop there for just a moment. God has not yet established the formal priesthood, so the firstborn of Israel are serving as the priests. That's these young men serving in priestly role, Numbers 3.41. They slaughter an unspecified number of oxen and offer these oxen to God on Moses' altar. There's two offerings here. What are they? There's the burnt offering, which speaks of making atonement for sin, expressing consecration to God, acknowledging that I am a sinner, and seeing that sin covered by the blood of the sacrificial animal. Secondly, there are peace offerings, which speak of fellowship with God. In the peace offering, the offering would be offered, the meat would be shared in proper uh, sections and proportion with the people and the priest, and there was a fellowship there in the presence of God. 
These two kinds of offerings are offered. And then Moses erects not only this altar, but these 12 stone pillars that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. These pillars stand in for the people who are too numerous to really get close around the altar. But they are, in a sense, represented here before God. Now the strangeness really begins. Verse 6, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now if you'll notice there in verses 6 through 8 in your text, the Hebrew text and our Greek translate, or our English translation here starts right at each verse with the word took. Right at the beginning of each verse. You notice verse 6, Moses took half the blood. Verse 7, then he took the blood of the covenant. Verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. These words are indicators. What we have here is a threefold ceremony. There is the throwing of blood, followed by the reading of the book of the covenant, followed by throwing of blood again. We needed to do a little bit to decipher this ritual. It's not something I hope you were doing last night or anytime soon, throwing blood around. So what does this mean? What's going on here? First, blood is thrown against the altar. And you notice here in verse 6 that it is half of the blood. Half of the blood that comes from these sacrificial animals is thrown against the altar. There's only one way that Israel can enter covenant with God, and that is for Israel's sin to be atoned. The wages of sin is death. And in this economy, God establishes that a sacrificial animal will lay down its life in the place of the sinner. And so blood covers the sin of the sinner here on the altar of God. The blood of the sacrificial victim substituting for the death of the sinner that is deserved. Moses then throwing half of that blood against the altar, though very strange to us, is perhaps a graphic way of stressing that Israel's only hope in fellowship, of fellowship with God is to have her sins forgiven. The shedding of sacrificial blood on God's terms is utterly essential. This blood is thrown against the altar. And then, verse 7, installment 2 of the ritual, he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. This book of the covenant probably refers to chapters 19 through 23. Having heard the word of the Lord, Israel now hears it again in written form and for the third time promises to keep God's law. 19.8, 24.3, here again in verse 7, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, we will be obedient. Third aspect, third element Here is the throwing of blood again, verse 8. I think we see the idea here. Blood at the center, the reading, and then blood again on the other side of this ritual. Blood throwing here is on the people in verse 8. He throws the blood on the people. What does that mean? It's very possible, if not probable, that the blood is actually thrown on the pillars. 
Uh, remember, there is a massive number of Israelites, and I don't think the idea is that Moses is going around with a bucket of blood and hitting everybody with it. That seems really kind of ridiculous or impossible. We don't know if maybe there was a sprinkling of it throughout the whole uh, assembly, but very possibly it's a throwing of the blood as he throws it against the altar. Now he goes, in a sense, on the other side of the equation and throws it against these pillars, possibly. In, in, in any rate, there is a throwing of blood that is seen as on the people. This act ratifies the covenant between God, who initiates the relationship, and Israel, who is qualified for the covenant by the shedding of blood. There must be a shedding of blood to cut this covenant between the two. Israel is already God's people. But within that relationship, as God's people, this covenant is cut, this blood is shed of these animals to say that Israel will obey God on His terms. He has initiated the relationship, but she has agreed to relate to Him in this way. And this agreement requires forgiveness of sin, the throwing of blood on the altar, and it also then allows for fellowship. For a meal to be eaten, a sacrificial meal to be sure, but a meal to be eaten in the presence of God relating and fellowshipping with Him. I hope the theological caps are on. Start thinking. Again, this is no isolated event that has nothing to do with us, but there are lines here. There are themes that are running through this section. We have the fellowship offering and the burnt offering, and we have the people brought in covenant relationship to God. Now that covenantal ceremony is complete, and those summoned now to the mountain set out on their journey. And notice what happens next. Then Moses and Aaron, verse 9, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel, those that called, God had called up, went up and they saw the God of Israel. We need to recognize this is an extremely rare event. It's an exciting event. It's a stop the presses kind of event. This is unique in Israel's history. Imagine how this experience could have been marketed among the people. We went up on the mountain and we saw God. That'd sell a lot of tickets, I think, but this would disappoint a lot of people. Notice what it says next there in verse 9, in verse 10. And they saw God, the God of Israel. Now notice what it says. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Wow. That's it? Nothing more? These men see God and all we get is a description of what's under His feet. And it seems like it was very attractive. This beautiful sapphire pavement laid out under His feet as clear as the heavens. But all we get is what's under His feet. Reminds us of something, doesn't it? Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and there He is. Describe Him, Isaiah, to us. He describes what? What is above the throne of God and what is below. And He tells us nothing else. And we long to know more. But there's nothing there.
Ezekiel chapter 1. He sees a vision of God, and what does he describe? What's under his feet. Consistently through the Old Testament, where God appears in vision, all people talk about is what's around him and under him. Never what they see. For in one sense of the word, they don't see him. For to see the glory of God in all of his splendor would be to execute the one who sees the vision. Nothing more. Those who gaze on the presence of God would be consumed by his glory. And so all that we have is they saw God and there was a pavement under his feet. And they deserve to die for seeing even what they saw. As sinners walking into the presence of God, they deserve to be destroyed on the spot. And that is why verse 11 says what it says. That seems a little strange to us, but notice verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What do you mean mean he didn't lay his hand on them? That's That's a phrase meaning he did not execute them. He did not exercise discipline against them. Of course he didn't. He invited them up into his presence, but both are true. He invited them up into his presence, but anyone who walks into the presence of God deserves to die on the spot because of our unholiness and the splendor of his glory. But he did not stretch out his hand to judge them. It's a word of grace. In fact, they behold God and eat and drink together in fellowship with him. It was universally understood that to gaze upon the glory of God would mean one's death. We consider it in various places. Jacob, Genesis 32 and verse 30. The parents of Samson, Judges 13 and verse 20. The people of God knew this. To see God in all his splendor means death. But we have here this remarkable sparing of these people. It it reminds us in a sense of the account of Esther. Remember she comes to the king and unbidden can die should he choose. But he holds out his royal scepter to Esther. That is in a sense what we have here. God holding out his royal scepter and accepting these people in his presence and communing with them as they eat and drink. Oh, there's great truth here. I thank God for this verse because it says that the sovereign holiness of God is not incompatible with His loving presence among His people. They ate and drank with God. This fellowship meal celebrates this covenant relationship between Israel and God and it is celebrated in God's gracious presence The food supply very likely being the peace offerings, which were eaten in fellowship with the priests before God. Here they eat with Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the priests before God, communing with God as they eat. Following the meal, God summons now Moses to journey or to ascend back up on the mountain, and we read of his journey. A journey closer in, beginning at verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. 
It's hard to know how verse 7 and 4 relate to verse 12. Moses has already written down and spoken the truth of God. Perhaps there's two copies. Perhaps what Moses wrote was just the unofficial copy and God gives him the law on the mountain. At, at any rate, we know that the word comes from God. And this is the purpose for Moses going up into the mountain. Verse 13, so Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. As far as he knows, he's left things in good hands here at the bottom of the mountain as he heads up to meet with God, and we'll be here for some time. Apparently, Aaron, his sons, and the 70 elders descend back to the people down the mountain, and Moses proceeds. Verse 15, Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Six days wait as Moses ascends into the cloud to meet the Lord. Middle of verse 16, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights in the presence of God. So the people are there at the foot of the mountain. They can clearly see that the mountaintop glows with fire. They continue to relate in fear to what they see in the presence of God. It's a vivid reminder of his dread fear and his glorious splendor. Yet Moses lingers there in the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the instructions that we will find in chapter 25 for, as some have put it, how to take this mountain with you. That is, in the instructions given in the tabernacle, the glory cloud will descend off of Mount Sinai and will go where? That glory cloud will be over the tabernacle of God. And wherever that cloud moves, Israel moves, but the tabernacle goes with her in her midst so that she may go with the presence of God wherever she goes. Moses will not return until chapter 32 and verse 15. But as we consider this particular account, we have to say certainly there's some strange ritual here at the foot of this mountain, to be sure. But they are not entirely indecipherable rituals to us, are they? In fact, they serve as lighted signposts. These rituals that we observe here and this covenant meal in communion with God are actually rich themes that burst into glorious display on this side of the cross. They're not isolated events for us. Think for a moment. Somebody comes from another planet or another part of the world where they have never heard anything about the Lord Jesus Christ and they observe the Lord's Supper. Or, perhaps even more difficult, they observe a Passover meal. There's an awful lot there they're not going to understand. It's just going to go right over their heads. But listen again. And listen anew to the words of Jesus 
as he celebrates the last Passover meal and says in Luke chapter 22 and verse 20 this, This cup, hear it, this cup, why does he use cup? Why not juice? Why not wine? Whatever word we use there. Why not that? Why cup? This cup is poured out for you. And it is the new covenant in my blood. This cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We have the old covenant established by the pouring out of blood from basins against the altar of God. Jesus speaking of his death as the pouring out of his blood. This cup is poured out for you and is the new covenant, a new relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Hear it again, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. As we come to this Lord's Supper, and as it is inaugurated in the Passover meal, there is a sense that we are to get that the blood of Christ has been poured out in our behalf to bring us into right relationship with God. Jesus gives His body. This bread is my body, He says. He is giving His body as the quintessential burnt offering that satisfies the wrath of God so that we can now gather as God's people and eat in fellowship with Him in the presence of God. We come to these times of the Lord's Supper and what we do is commune with God in a meal. Peter is not throwing away words either when he speaks of the believer as the elect of God, chosen according to the foreknowledge of his foreknowledge, hear it, for sprinkling with his blood. This sprinkling of blood, this formation of a new covenant, connects us back to this very scene in Exodus chapter 24 and other places in the Pentateuch. But as God's people, there is a relationship that is established with God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is necessary is that we have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, that the blood of Jesus has been thrown upon us. Now, there were a lot of early pagans who really had a problem with that theme. In fact, there were cults that had such rituals where they would stand down in a pit and they would have a bull hanging over the pit, strung over the pit, and they would cut the belly of that bull and the hot blood would pour down upon the initiates. That's the Christians, the pagans would say. That's what they're doing. They're talking about this blood of the covenant, throwing blood on people and all this kind of thing. They didn't understand. They didn't realize the point. They didn't understand the ritual. 
The point, of course, is not being dumped with literal blood. The point is that the blood of Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. And in that sense, yes, we are dumped with the blood of Christ. We're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. In other words, it took His death to bring us into fellowship with God. And what do we do now that we have been brought into fellowship with God? We eat together. We commune with Him We commune with one another in His presence. And I ask you the question then today, have you been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ? Has that blood been applied to your account such that it has washed away your sin and brought you into right relationship to God. If you have not come to that place of receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and understanding that His life was given in your behalf to pay the penalty of your sin, then you are without Christ and you have no fellowship with God. But I'd like us to turn back to John 1, which Pastor read earlier to us. John chapter 1 and verse 14. And to say that there is indeed a communion with God through Jesus Christ that is to be recognized and celebrated, but there is a strangeness to it all. As we find it in John chapter 1 and verse 14 which we, I'm sure, will read as God gives us opportunity through the remainder of Exodus over and over again. But the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and we have seen His glory. John chapter 14. Jesus says to Philip, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And yet there is this reminder through Scripture that no one has ever seen God. So what is it? The tension remains. Israel, the leaders of Israel here in Exodus 24, walked into the very presence of God and saw Him, yet didn't see Him. And in the person of the Son, we see God, and yet there is a distinction from God. That is, Christ is a distinct person. He is the Son who shows us the Father. The tension remains. Never, it would appear, will we ever be able to fully view the glory of God. He dwells, as the song we sing often, in inapproachable light. A light, a glory, that is so majestic and so great that should we ever see it, we would be consumed on the spot. 
Yet this word becomes flesh, and in the face of Jesus Christ, we see God. It is both and. We see him, and we have never seen him, and never will. His transcendence is so great that never will we be able to fully perceive all that God is. Never able to look fully into his glory. And yet, in the person of Jesus Christ, we fellowship with God. We've seen him. He's walked among us. And we know him. And then having entered into covenant with God through his blood, we can fellowship and commune with God through Jesus Christ. Which is what we do as we come to this meal. Do not eat of this meal. Do not drink of this meal. If you cannot say with great assurance in your heart that I know that Jesus Christ has forgiven my sin, I have come to trust in Him in a saving way. I have identified with Him in believer's baptism. I know God through Christ. If you can say this, join with us. If not, just observe and pray. But what we do here should we really understand it, would probably reduce us to tears. For we meet in the presence of God. We commune with Him in a meal that has been made possible through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. If that blood through faith has been sprinkled upon you, come and let us commune with the Lord together. Let's bow for prayer as we prepare to do so. Father, as we now sing, help us to lift up our voices in such a way that is not merely singing, but is relating to you, our God, and to one another as an assembly. Through these songs, prepare our hearts to receive this Lord's Supper, this, these elements that speak of the sacrifice of our Savior. And I pray that in this moment, in this time together, we would not treat this lightly, but truly and genuinely commune with you, our God and our Savior, and with one another, the body of Christ, that you have redeemed for yourself. Help us to this end. Meet with us here and strengthen us, we pray.